This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we have a special guest coming on the podcast. His name is Justin Camp. So Justin Camp is an author, a speaker. He has done a lot of different things in kind of the men's ministry space, but he's got a new book out called Odyssey encounter the God of heaven and escape the surly bonds of this world. And so we spend a lot of time talking about this book on this podcast, but I do want to read the short description here of his book to kind of give you an idea of what we're going to be getting into today. So here we go. Modern men are experiencing unprecedented levels of angst and anxiety. We're frustrated, stressed, burned out, and bored. We turn to work and wealth, busyness and distraction, alcohol and drugs and pornography, but none of it works because only one thing will bring us the joy, peace, purpose, and significance we desire. A relationship with the God of the heaven, an intimate relationship, one that is real and true. But for that kind of relationship, we must embark on a journey to encounter him personally. In his new book, Odyssey, Justin Camp offers a practical scriptural field guide for men who are ready to walk this ancient path. The book is built around six short biographies, real life stories of great American astronauts. These nano histories will engage readers' curiosity and inspire them to undertake epic quests of their own. This book is for scouts and prospectors, for explorers and pilgrims. It is for men who want to experience more and a better life than any of us ever thought possible. So guys, this was a great book. He sent me an advanced copy of it. And I'm so glad that he did. I, I spent some time digging into it because the thing is, is for most of us, we don't really know a whole lot about our great U.S. astronauts. We know about the big ones, you know, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and those types of things. Uh, you know, maybe we've watched Apollo 13 or whatever the situation may be, but that's just one part of the book that's really good because this guy gives you a very different perspective and kind of a different voice in terms of how things pertain to men's ministry and those types of things. You know, if any of you are on Instagram You've probably seen Wire for Men. That's Wire for Men, W-I-R-E. He's got a lot of stuff on Instagram. He's released some other books. There's these devotionals that he sends out. It's just an incredible amount of content, but it's specifically geared towards guys. It's specifically geared to folks like you that need to be in the word, that need to have that, that little whisper in your ear that, hey, you need to be paying attention to things that are maybe just not right there in front of you, right? And that's one thing that this book does a great job of doing. And and just Justin Camp does a great job of doing this book is explaining to you that, yes, there is the real world, but then there's the world outside of the physical world. There's the spiritual realm that most of us miss out on. And so we go into a lot of detail in this podcast. I really enjoyed having Justin on. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Justin Camp, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey Kyle, thanks for having me. I've been a I've been a fan of Undaunted for a while on Instagram, and so it's fun to fun to connect live here. Well, it's always good to hear that we got fans out there. There's at least one, so we can I can call my mom and tell her that we got <laughs> one fan. So I, I really appreciate right. it. But yeah, let's just go ahead and launch right in, man. Uh, because obviously, one of the big things that you do, you do a lot of writing. Uh, you've done a lot of writing, and you continue to do so. That's part of the big reason why you're here today. So, how did you even get into writing? And I guess more specifically, why does most of your writing kind of lean towards Christian men? <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, I did not start out a writer. Well, maybe I did. I don't know. Maybe I did and I didn't know it. So, um, you know, I grew up here in Silicon Valley. Um, I uh, went to uh, uh, Los Angeles for undergrad. I think I gravitated towards subjects that were writing intensive, so social social science type stuff. And then I went to law school back in uh, back in uh, Philadelphia. And law school is all about writing. And so I think I was writing for a long time and just didn't consider myself a writer. So um, during the time I was in uh, graduate school, I actually uh, partnered with a professor at the business school that was on the same campus as the law school that I was attending. And we collaborated on a book and um, I wrote most of it and he sort of advised the uh, the process and the, and the project. And, um, and you know, I, I sort of put it away. Uh, and uh, just through serendipity, through crazy circumstances, I got connected with some publishers in New York and um, they, you know, we were at a dinner and, you know, they said, Hey, let me, let me see what you've written. And I said, okay, you know, not expecting them to publish it. Um, this is John Wiley and sons and they went ahead and published it. And so that was a book on venture capital. So that was purely, you know, um, focused on, uh, you know, teaching uh, men and women who are graduating from uh, business school about the venture capital business. Um, and I loved that process. I did. I, I just, I loved putting together, you know, words and sentences and paragraphs and just sort of the craft of writing, um, but also an argument. And that's one thing that, you know, um, you learn a lot about in law school is putting together a, an argument that makes sense and is very clear, you know, um, plain language type stuff. And so, um, <clears throat> I published that book and, and it, it's still being used in, in, a, in a bunch of uh, graduate business schools. But uh, I got, you know, like a lot of men do, I got real responsible in air quotes, got real responsible and, <laughs> right. um, and got married and uh, put away writing. And I did it for, you know, more than a decade. I put it away. And that was one of the toughest times of my life. It was tough for a lot of reasons. Um, we, were, we had young kids. Uh, Jennifer and I were figuring out marriage and we hadn't, you know, um, we hadn't surrendered enough of our hearts to, uh, um, you know, to sort of have the transformation that needs to happen, um, to, um, you know, be a, a loving father and a loving, um, husband in the way that we're meant to be. And so that was a tough time. It was, it was a, you know, it's a period that every, every man goes through. Um, but one of the contributing factors definitely was the fact that I wasn't being creative at all. So I went to New York and worked as a uh, lawyer on wall street for a period of time. And then I came back to my home in Silicon Valley. This was, you know, 99, 2000. It was party time in Silicon Valley, um, the dot-com sure. boom. And, uh, and I started investing in high-tech companies. My, my father was an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur. And um, around that time, he and I cooked up the crazy idea of starting a small venture capital firm and uh, a series. Of, and we, we, we raised a series of funds. And so I spent 15 years investing in high-tech companies. And... You know, ever since that first time I started working in New York, um, I noticed something. I didn't, I didn't notice this ever when I was in school, but I did when I was working in New York. And it was this kind of sadness in the morning, especially on a Monday morning when I was having to, you know, leave home, leave Jennifer, who's my wife, and, um, and head off to work. And um, I think I didn't know what it was. I just thought that all men face that, you know, everyone hates their job and you just man up and you grind. Um, but but looking back, I can see that that was God speaking to me through my discontent um, that he had made me for something else. 
And uh, while that time, you know, I am grateful for because it prepared me for what I do now. It absolutely prepared me for what I do now. Um, I, you know, I wasn't super happy. Um, and it started small. It was very exciting working on Wall Street. It was, it was super exciting. You know, front page of the Wall Street Journal type stuff, every deal that I was working on. I mean, I was a really junior lawyer, but but to just be part of that machine was was pretty, pretty exciting. Um, but that discontent started building slowly, incrementally, day by day. And so I moved back to California, you know, like I said, around 99, 2000, um, right before the internet bubble exploded or imploded, and um, which was a lot of fun, um, yeah. you know, being a venture investor during that time. Um, but I, I noticed almost immediately that that sadness was there. It was a little different. I was working on um, work uh, that I that I very much enjoyed and I was super grateful for, you know, you get to work with teams that are just, you know, so excited about what they're doing. They're, they're passionate. They're putting everything into these dreams of starting these companies. And they're all kind of working for the right reasons. They're working, you know, because of, well, maybe, you know, it's, I should say, <laughs> shouldn't say that. Um, I, they're fairly pure reasons, um, you know, from a secular perspective. It's not, you, you, with these small companies, you really don't get into the political and um, bureaucratic stuff of a larger company. They're small companies. Everyone's excited and everyone's very, um, you know, um, they're dedicated to what's going on. Very dedicated. Yeah. And just excited about life. And, and so, so I enjoyed it. I did it for 15 years, but over that 15 years, that incremental increase in discontent started becoming very noticeable. In the beginning, it wasn't super noticeable. After five years, I started going, wow, this is, I'm, why am I having to will myself out of bed on a Monday morning? You know, by 10 years, I was drowning in it. And so, um, like I said, that was a tough time. It was a time when I wasn't writing. Jennifer and I were struggling through figuring out how to be a married couple and how to have three young kids. And, um, I had some friends who, uh, and we were involved in church stuff, you know, we were leading mission trips. We were, you know, leading couples groups and everything, but I had a, a group of friends who said, um, come join our men's group. And, um, there were probably about 10 guys in that group. And I knew like three of them or something. And I said, you know, one more thing right now, I'm not going to do that. And so for about a year I said, no. And then when on one cold, you know, kind of dark, uh, January evening, I finally dragged myself over to where they were meeting in this conference room at a, at a, uh, 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 kind of a tech company that wasn't too far away from my house. And I walked in, sat down, you know, said hi. And, and there was just sort of this easy banter around the room and then things got rolling. And immediately I was like, this is something different. These guys are talking about stuff that nobody talks about. I don't know. I just got lucky. These guys were just bold, brave, sold out men, you know, and, um, they were confessing, you know, struggles with pornography, struggles with alcohol, struggles in marriage, you know, um, and just the worst things you could possibly talk about. And they, and, but there was something so inviting about the whole thing because they were, they knew they were sons. They knew they were sons of God. They knew they were loved. They knew they were flawed, but they knew they were loved. And so I just said, okay, look, this is just to, to myself, this is, this scares the living daylights out of me, you know, because if I stay, I'm going to have to do either. I'm going to come there and every time be a liar, you know, and, and hide which, which isn't an option. So I can either never come back or I can come back and do what these guys are doing. And there was so much life in it. You know, that was, like I said, it was a, that was a tough time. I was fairly isolated. I had, I had friends and acquaintances, but no one really knew me very well. And so, um, I haven't been out of community since. And so that was just an enormous blessing. Those guys started speaking identity into me. 
you know, I had been, I had been listening to the, to the whispers of culture about who I should be, you know, go and make, get a job and make a lot of money and buy a house and get a right, the right title and have the right vacations and everything. I'd been doing that long enough to know that it was breaking my heart, you know? And so these guys started helping me ask the same questions, but of God, who did you make me to be? And what did you make me to do? And, uh, you know, like God, he uh, started answering, um, but not with the uh, answers I expected and certainly not with the timing that I wanted. But he did start answering in surprising ways through, you know, through a you know, passage in scripture or a movie or a conversation with my wife or, um, you know, a sermon that I heard. And I was just it, it was just identity pouring into my life um, over a period of a, about a year. The other thing they started doing was kind of introducing me to God for the first time. I'd grown up in the church, but um, my experience with God was always hearing stories of him, you know, everything that I held of God. And I did have an intellectual relationship of sorts with him, um, but it was all based on secondhand and thirdhand, um, you know, evidence of him rather than firsthand relationship with him. And so this guy started introducing me to things like, you know, worship and listening prayer and things where, where I come into contact where, where I come into his presence, where it's just me and just him, you know, silence, that things like that. And that was just fantastic. And so it was such a blessing on my life. Oh, and, oh, and I got to say part of the identity thing was the writing. You know, I, I had a couple of those guys, two different circumstances where those guys just said, look, man, the way you talk about writing, you, you have to be writing somehow. And, you know, it was probably 2011, 2012, 10, 2011, something like that, where I had come up against a um, point in my career where I was going to either have to raise another venture fund or um, uh, because we had invested the, the prior one um, and um, or, or do something else. And so, so I, so I hijacked the men's group one night and just said, Hey guys, like, I know this is, um, you know, it feels weird for me to do, but I really am struggling with something. I don't know what to do here. And so I went for about 45 minutes and explained everything. I said, you know, here are my options, I think, as I see them. I could raise another fund, but my heart, you know, remember the discontent is, 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 is up to my eyeballs, you know, at this point. My heart isn't in that. I could start a company. You know, we had helped about 40 companies get started at that point, and I had a lot of opinions about how to do it. I don't know if I would have been any good at it, but I thought I, you know, I thought I could at least try that. Um, or the third thing was lead a ministry. And at that point I had no idea what I was talking about. I was thinking like, you know, we had done some mission trips at that point. I was thinking about an orphanage in Mexico or something. And two, two of the men there that night looked at each other and then looked at me and said, well, whatever you do, whatever choice here you make, you have to be writing. And I immediately said, well, I, I know enough about the publishing world to know that you can't you know, make a living, certainly not for a family of five in Silicon Valley where the cost of living is exorbitant um, on a, on a writer's salary, like not even close, you know, not even in the neighborhood. Um, and so uh, one of them looked me straight in the eye, a very good friend of mine. Um, who, and he said, I think you need to not worry about that. And I just felt like it was the Holy Spirit speaking right to my heart, my kind of wounded heart, you know, and so I said, okay, and came home, told my wife and Jennifer was, took some time to get used to that idea, you know? And so, sure. um, she had been writing some too. She was, you know, there was a period of time around that time where blogging, Christian blogging was really big and it was dominated by women and they were doing some really amazing things on these blogs. And Jen was a part of that community. And so she had been doing some blogging and, and, um, so it wasn't 
out of completely out of left field when I said, you know, Hey, I think I'm going to do this. Um, but, uh, uh, we kind of joined forces and have been working together ever since. Now, why I started, you know, writing about men's, you know, kind of discipleship for men specifically, is just because I felt like it was such a blessing to me, those men that kind of, you know, who, you know, a great analogy is kind of a hand out of the darkness. Like I was, I was just, you know, at a place where my heart was broken. All these promises of the world were just coming up empty and I didn't know what to do. I was sitting there going, well, I've, I've poured so much of my life into this achievement thing. You know, what do I do now? And these men kind of reached out a hand to me and pulled me into, into, you know, into something that was way better and is never going to break my heart. And so, um, so I'm, you know, when, 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 when I was hearing from God that, you know, you, you have a place and a position in the kingdom, um, and, uh, that's around writing. I was like, well, I'm not going to write about anything else other than what these men taught me. And so it's, you know, it's discipleship for men. It's teaching how, men how to live in the kingdom and how to receive the goodness and love of God and, and, uh, live that out, let that pour back out of them. So that's a really long winded uh, answer to your question about why, why I became a writer. I think I always was, but I just didn't know it. Well, that's the thing is uh, I don't really care how long the answers are as long as we get good context. So I think you've definitely delivered that for us. But that, you know, having that inspiration, having that direction has led you to do some pretty incredible things. Uh, if anybody uh, on this podcast would recognize your name, it's because of Wire for Men, following yeah. that on Instagram or getting those daily devotionals. But then also here recently, you've released a new book. And so uh, if you're listening to this on time, this book came out this month. So you can definitely check it out. We'll have it in the show notes, but it's called Odyssey, Encounter the God of Heaven and Escape the Surly Bonds of This World. And so Anytime I talk to an author about their particular book, I, I'm always curious about the same thing, which is basically what is the impetus for, for writing this particular yeah. book? And then in your own words, the author's words, what is kind of, you know, just a brief overview of the basic theme of Odyssey? Yeah. So, so this, so Odyssey is the second book in something called the Wire series for men. So it's a series of book books written specifically for the men of Wire, the men of Wire on Instagram, the men of Wire on Facebook, and then the men of Wire on um, our email list. And, um, it's a, it's a thing that I, you know, partnered with David C. Cook to create and kind of handcraft for, for those men. So the first book was called invention. It's all about identity because that's the first phase of, that's the first season that I went through when I started this new relationship with God. Um, uh, the second book, uh, Odyssey is all about moving from like I, you know, like I was describing moving from knowing of God to knowing him, you know, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, the next book, there's going to be a third book, which I'm writing right now about community. And those were sort of, it's my story, but it's universal. Um, and so I think, you know, the impetus is always God. He taps me on the shoulder and says, Hey, this is what we're going to write about. It's, it's, it, you know, because it's meant to do type stuff, made to do type stuff, this writing for me, um, it's very much co-laboring with my father, you know, with my heavenly dad. And so he works b beside me. I mean, there are thoughts that come into my mind and connections that are made as I'm writing. And um, there are things that happen that are just that, that cannot be explained in any other way. So um, so what is Odyssey? So um, uh, Odyssey uh, is so uh, well, I'll, I'll take a step back and, and tell you one unique thing about the Wire series for men. So I, I made a kind of a bet. And that bet was we can write a book that guys love to read. Um, and so there are a lot of there's a lot of Christian nonfiction out there. Most of it's written by pastors and my shelves are filled with it and I love it. 
Um, but I didn't want to write something like that. You know, I'm not a pastor. I don't, uh, I, my voice is not a pastor's voice. My voice is, you know, of somebody who's worked in the business world for a long time. And when I first started talking to publishers about this, um, this idea, there was pushback because they said, um, you know, a few things. They said, men are really, Christian men are very hard to reach from a marketing perspective, number one. Um, they don't read a lot of books, number two. And then number three, when they do read books, they don't often finish them. And I thought, well, maybe that's all true. Maybe it's not true. I don't know. I don't have the data like they have, but um, Wire's doing pretty well reaching men. You know, men need the gospel just as much as anybody else. And if you put it in a, in a, in a form that speaks to them, speaks in their language, speaks to them the way that they're used to being spoken to as men in the marketplace, mostly is who I write to, professional men, tech savvy men. Um they eat it up because they need it. You know, they're out there in the world and, and it's like a, that's why I called it wire. It's, it's kind of like a, you know, a, you know, an old mail plane or a, a telegraph wire reaching deep into the wilderness, you know, to, you know, with messages of God's goodness and love and the guys need it just as much as anybody. So I don't know about the marketing side, but the, but the, about the, um, you know, the two comments about men don't Christian men don't read a ton of books and don't finish them. I was like, well, I really want to create something that um, counters those tendencies as best I can. You know, um, everyone starts out with, you know, those intentions when they're writing a book. But because that was kind of the gauntlet was thrown down by publishers, I thought, well, let's see what we can do. And so the idea behind these books is to make them a little bit more fun. Um, and so they include um, both of these books and the third one will as well, what I call nano histories. And so the idea is... Um, there's a historical profile at the beginning of each chapter that's very relevant to the subject matter of the underlying chapter. So for invention, um, which was on identity, there were seven chapters with profiles of industrial revolution era inventors. And so for like the, the chapter on being able to hear God's voice, um, uh, that was, you know, the profile was of Guillermo Marconi who invented the, um, you know, the first radio that was based on, you know, electromagnetic uh, waves. And so the idea that, you know, it was really a great analogy and very helpful, I think, to a lot of men, at least I've heard that, of that that's a really great analogy of something we can't see, but we can test by its effect. And so um, so it was really fun to write that chapter and bring in all the, the, the analogy of electromagnetic radiation in this inventor. Um, uh, and that, so that, that, you know, those each, each chapter is kind of like that. Um, and, um, for Odyssey, because the way that we develop a relationship with, with God that is close and personal and conversational is to meet him somewhere, to encounter him, uh, to, to begin to experience him, uh, one-on-one -on -one. and the way that we do that, you know, according to the Bible and according to 2000 years of human history, as we go into the wilderness, you know, we hit the road, we get out of our home where, you know, we, there's kind of a gravitational pull towards building structures and routines and things that kind of help us get through the day, you know, watching Netflix and drinking coffee and drinking a beer in the evening and all those kinds of things that kind of dull our senses to the supernatural and the spiritual. So, but once we hit the road, once we get out into the wilderness alone, um, all those interruptions and intermediaries are gone and it's just us and God and our senses are keen we're able to be aware and see God. And when we do that, when we begin listening and looking, you know, he shows up uh, again, not in the ways we expect and not with the timing that we, you know, would, would like, but he shows up. 
And so this book is about adventure. It's about pilgrimage. It's about journey. It's about the spiritual practice of going into the wilderness like Jesus did, you know, like Moses did, like David did, um, like Abraham did, um, you know, throughout the Bible, um, there is, they're teaching us how to encounter the God of heaven now, you know, not just after we die, but now. And so I wanted to use an analogy that um, the guys would, you know, again, have fun reading and, and would be really tightly connected with this idea of, of the greatest adventure we can ever take, encountering our father in heaven. And so I chose the, you know, the greatest physical journey any humans have taken, and that is to go into space and to go to the moon. And so, um, so that's what I did. I picked, you know, guys from the mid-century, um, you know, kind of height of the space age, the golden age of NASA, you know, so the Mercury, Gemini and Apollo programs. Um, there are six men that I profile, uh, all believers. Um, these are men who trusted science, you know, so much so that they were willing to risk, you know, death at, you know, supersonic speed. And, you know, once they got into orbit, it was like massively supersonic speed, <laughs> 175 or 172 or something like that miles per hour. You know, they're going when they're in orbit and even faster than that when they're going to the moon. Um, uh, but these, these men were, you know, just like us, which makes them great. Like the disciples, you know, the 12 disciples were just a bunch of guys, um, just like us. Well, these, these, um, astronauts were too, they were, you know, fascinating, but frail, you know, just like all of us, just broken, broken guys, you know, sons of God who don't have it all together. Um, but these six had a heart for God. They loved God. They trusted God. They trusted science, but they trusted something deeper. And that is, you know, their faith. And so, um, there's some great stories in there. It starts with John Glenn. Um, that's kind of the chapter, um, on, uh, you know, asking the question is, is there more, is there something more going on here? You know, more than, cause the culture teaches us to keep focused on what we can see and, and hear and touch, um, and really focus, builds within us a strong bias towards the physical world. You know, I mean, think about, you know, I think about how I spend my day and it's in my email inbox and it's, you know, it's on my computer. It's, it's things that I really, I can, it's, I'm, I, I have, even though I have this real heart to connect with God spiritually, I have such an intense bias towards the physical, towards, you know, things that are, things that are right in front of my face, my phone buzzing, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so that chapter, you know, John Glenn was just a man who would always look at the world, but he would always try to look through the world towards what God was doing towards the supernatural. And so it's, He's a great one for the first kind of chapter. But then we profile Ed White, who was the first man who, um, you know, first American to walk in space, uh, to actually, you know, pop open the capsule and step out into the, you know, unknown of outer space and, you know, the um, leave the safety of, of, the, of the spaceship. Um, and then we profile Gordon Cooper, who went to space both with, um, he was the last of the Mercury astronauts, and he also uh, went to space as part of the Gemini program. And then um, we do... Uh, uh, Frank Borman, who was the commander of the Apollo 8 mission, which was the first mission to actually go to the moon. They didn't land on the moon, but they orbited about 10 times and then returned and, and set the stage for Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to actually set foot on the on the moon. But theirs is a great one because, I mean, it was the first time anybody had left Earth, you know, left Earth orbit and left the gravity of Earth. It was the first time you know, some human being didn't experience sunrise and sunset. You know, they were they were in a, in, you know, they went to a place where the gravity of the moon was greater than the gravity of the earth. It was really, um, you know, a, a tremendous adventure, um, into 
perhaps death. You know, the folks at NASA gave him about a 50-50 shot of returning. Um, so that's an awesome one. And then, and then two men um, who were really fascinating towards the end of the Apollo program, Jim Irwin, who uh, is sure, well, he, he passed away, but he, he was sure that he encountered uh, God on the moon. I mean, he just felt his presence from the moment they landed to the moment they left. And then um, Charlie Duke is the last one. He was a part of Apollo 16, the second to last Apollo mission. And uh, he didn't find God on the moon at all. He wasn't, he was a nominal Christian believer um, until he returned and went through some really, really tough stuff in his marriage and in his professional life, and then found God in the front seat of his car in New Braunfels, Texas. Um, so great stories, great men, fascinating, and I think really accessible because they're just guys like us at the end of the day. Yeah. Reading through the book and reading through those stories, it's uh, names that you might recognize for most of us that aren't into aeronautics or, or astronauts or any of those types of stories. There's going to be a lot of names you haven't heard of before, but very, very interesting anecdotes from these people's lives. But I want to dig into several quotes throughout the book and kind of get a little bit more context. And we'll obviously, we'll just start here with chapter one. So there's great. a quote here that I'd like to get you to, to tell us a little bit more about, and this is it from chapter one. I confess until recently I couldn't relate. And I know most church going men in our modern world won't connect with these words either. We'll nod our heads about God's love generally or theoretically, but we don't know much about the scale of God's love for each of us specifically, personally, something isn't connecting. And as soon as I read that quote, the first thing that, uh, that occurred to me and the first thing that I wrote down is like, well, the church has has a lot of blame on this one. I feel like the church has done a really, really poor job of encouraging men uh, just in general, but specifically about things in the spiritual realm and in the spiritual world. So do you agree with my assessment that the church should wear a lot of the blame for that? I do. I do. I, you know, I was, I, I attended a lot of, of churches, you know, I grew up in, in, a, in one church here in Silicon Valley, and then I attended church kind of by myself, um, you know, down, down in LA when I was going to school there, and then in Philadelphia, then in New York, and then back here. And I didn't get that message. I didn't. I didn't get that message of God's true heart, of his outrageous love. You know, scripture says that he sings over us and he, he dances about us, dances because of us. And he thinks about us all the time. We can't even fathom the number of thoughts about us in his head. You know, it says that he set us as the focus of his love when he was setting the foundations of the earth and he knit us together with such care. This is a God who loves outrageously. And I didn't hear that. I heard a lot about a God who wanted me to follow, follow rules and a God who was disappointed and maybe disgusted with me sometimes because, you know, true confession here, my struggle was with pornography. And it was easy to think that God might be disgusted and certainly, you know, um, disappointed in me. And so I do think that the churches aren't great at that. I don't know if I would go so hard, go, go so far as laying blame at their feet. I think these pastors who are leading these churches are doing it for the right reasons. And a lot of them just don't know God that way. And so they just don't know. And so I can't sit there and point the finger at, at, uh, at them and say, it's your fault. Um, we are all broken people, all trying to figure this stuff out. And, um, you know, searching the Bible and searching, you know, um, uh, relationships and searching for God in, in a lot of places. And, um, we just get confused sometimes and, you know, and we're all on a separate journey, you know, and, our, and that journey has different timing. And so I, I just think a lot of those pastors who are, who, who are up there in the pulpit doing the best they can um, just don't yet know him like that, you know? So 
Yes and no, but a big yes. Okay, fair enough. And that's just kind of one of the things that that's just the first thing that popped into my mind while I was reading that, that there might be some of an issue there. Uh, Another quote from chapter one that I want to go over, and this was subtle, and I might be reading a little more into the text than what you uh, wanted to put in there, but it's this quote here. They implied, and you talked about this a little bit as well. They implied in no uncertain terms that he wanted me to do better at following the rules. I will, I promise. They taught me that I needed to be a better person. This time I'm going to be. They taught me that I just needed to man up. I will try my best. So whenever I read that, when you got to that that last in those three, when you talked about them just needing you to man up, it seemed like there was a little bit of bitterness in in your mentioning of someone telling you that you need to man up because it's just like, well, hey, I'll try my best. Is there any bitterness there when you do hear? Because obviously that's a common refrain for, yeah. for men in the church. Like on Mother's Day, you know, all the moms are leaving their floating. And after, on Father's Day, you know, all the guys leave the church like, man, I would not be uh, too disappointed if I never showed back up here again because we just right. get, you know, drugged through the thorn bushes. So do you was there <laughs> some bitterness there whenever you kind of were going through that particular section of writing? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I feel like, um, you know, I don't know where that bitterness is directed. It's directed a lot at the enemy. I think, you know, the enemy works through culture to, to, to twist the gospel. And the way he twists it is that God wants a relationship with you when you get yourself fixed up, when you get your act together, when you man up. And then he wants a relationship with you and then he'll delight in you. Um, but that's not what the gospel says at all. That's a, that's a perversion of the gospel. That's a twisted gospel. The gospel says, come to me, come to me in your sin, in your weariness, in your brokenness, and let's get better together. Because what we need and don't have is grace. Grace by definition, you know, Dallas Willard taught us all this, the grace by definition is what we can't do on our own. And what we can't do on our own is fix ourselves. Like we try all the time, right? That's that's the man up thing. Oh man, I'm just going to white knuckle it here. I'm going to get better on my myself. I'm going to stop yelling at my kids. I'm going to treat my wife with a you know loving in every moment. I'm going to you know stop drinking. I'm going to stop doing you know looking for self comfort through food or through pornography or whatever. I'm going to do it this time. I'm really going to do it, and we can't. We need God. We need God either through community, being in you know community with guys who are struggling with the same stuff. Or we need God directly through prayer and silence and scripture, you know, and then grace flows into our lives and then we are able to do what we can't on our own. So the trick is the hard part, obviously, of that is showing up and encountering God, whether it's in church or in silence or it's, you know, sitting and reading scripture or it's in a community of men or, you know, however it looks, showing up there feeling pretty darn ashamed of yourself. You know, having blown it one more time when you tried, you vowed to everybody you were going to get it right this time, mostly to yourself, mostly to God, you know, maybe to your wife, if she knows what's going on, you know, and you've blown it one more time and you got to, you got to, you know, be, be coming into the presence of God means kind of looking him in the eye and saying, Hey, I'm here again. And, you know, throughout scripture, when people did that, when John did it, you know, um, uh, everybody, you know, when, when, um, Peter gets, you know, realizes there's a miraculous catch and Peter realizes that he's standing next to Jesus, the son of God, that there's something that this is different. Everyone says, I'm not worthy. I have to go away from you. You know, Peter said, I have to depart from you. I'm not worthy. We all have that experience. Like it's hard when you feel very ashamed of yourself to look God in the eyes and not ever break gaze. But that's what we need to do. We need to not break gaze. We need to sit there and go, I'm broken. 
and I'm your son and you love me and you're going to help me and you don't love me less because I blow it, you know? And so I understand how most men are feeling that way. I feel that way a lot still, you know, but I have encountered him and I know it intellectually. My heart knows it a little bit. It, it knows it more and more every day. My head knows it pretty, pretty well who he is, but my heart is just getting to know him. And that's what this book is all about. It was, it, it's really based on a heart journey that I took. It started in, um, you know, in a, in a, a Tuesday evening, a prayer um, up in McMinnville, Oregon, out in the Willamette Valley up in Oregon. My wife and I were visiting a pastor up there and we were praying with him and he had me ask in prayer, are there any lies that I um, believe about myself or about, about, I was, you know, speaking to God at the moment, so about you, God. And the first thing that popped in my head was this vow that I made or this agreement that I made or this conclusion that I drew when I was 12 years old. It was right after my mom was diagnosed with leukemia. And I, and I just saw myself in that moment when I was in McMinnville at age, whatever, 43 or something. Um, I saw myself at age 12 saying, wow, God loves me less. Kind of the world loves me less, but I think it was more of God loves me less. And so this journey that I write about in the book and really was the basis for this book um, was all about God destroying that lie. I mean, he left a big smoking hole in the ground where that lie used to sit. Um, he just taught me, you know, through a series of, um, it, so this journey was a figurative journey and, um, a lot of the, a lot of them are, they're sort of, you know, journeys that we take, um, you know, at our homes, you know, journey into scripture for a season or into, um, you know, community or into leading something or starting something or, you know, creating something. Um, but some of them are physical journeys. And this was kind of a hybrid, this six month kind of journey that was the basis for the book. So um, it was a journey that I took at home, learning how much God loves me personally, not just kind of human beings, but me, Justin. Um, it's true of every human being, but I was learning it for myself. Um, and it was punctuated by some trips. So it started in McMinnville. There was a hunting trip, which opens the book um, in Montana. There was a fly fishing trip uh, up in Northern California, a little bit north of, I live in Northern California, but further north up in the Cascades. And, um, and then it ended on a, uh, with a retreat in the mountains of Colorado with some friends. And um, man, when I got back from that trip, I was like, we got to write a book about this because this was the most phenomenal thing that I've experienced. So I've experienced that, but I still struggle with what I'm talking about. I still struggle with that twisted gospel. I still want to get myself fixed up and then go into God's presence um because i feel worthy at that point well and there was something that i also i i feel like i read into the subtleties in chapter one more than just about anything because there was another subtle thing in chapter one that i read that i think kind of plays into what you're talking about here and it's just one sentence and it was this i never doubted i was a beloved son my mom's right and so you kind of talked about where you were but my curiosity here is why no mention of dad yeah. So that is a great question. So he comes up in a lot in the first book. So he, uh, you know, um, so the first book invention is all an identity and, uh, it, it, uh, um, you know, kind of looks at very practically, how do we start asking the questions of who, who we are, who am I God, who did you make me to be? And what did you make me to do? And my dad figures very, very heavily in that book, but around this book of love, my experience of unconditional love, I felt very loved by my dad, but not in the way that I was loved by my mom. My mom's love was just, you know, it, the love of a mom is just different, you know? Um, 
you know, you see the love, um, you know, the love of a mother talked about in scripture a lot. And it's just a, it's a very pure reflection of God's love. It's just a different thing. And so um, I thought that it was my mom doing it, you know, until much later. And I enjoyed it very much. I mean, she and I were very close. She was diagnosed with leukemia when I was 12 and she passed away when I was 21. Um, so it was, a, it was just a brutal time um, on my heart. Um, you know, I loved her and we were very close. And to see, you know, her decline, um, you know, it was, it was one of these things where there were so many waiting rooms and, you know, two bone marrow transplants and good, you know, with leukemia, it's all about blood counts. And so good counts, bad counts, good tests, bad tests, you know, it's just up and down for nine years. Um, but through that, through that, all of that, and, and, and through, you know, ages, you know, zero to nine as well, she was just the picture of, of unconditional love. You know, my dad, a little bit different. He was a dad's love, you know, which is very important. You know, and he was, he was, you know, I mean, he was, he's a very good dude. He's one of my best friends today. Um, but, you know, he's a dad and he was, he was a dad of that generation. He was working very hard. He was spending a lot of time, you know, at the office. He was a, um, at that point during those years, he was working on big satellite telecommunication systems. And, uh, you know, when he wasn't working on that, he was working on finances for the family at home. And so he was, around and he was very involved in my life, but not like my mom was. And so she was the, she was the natural one to, to highlight in this book, which is all about the outrageous love of God. He was the one to highlight in the first book, um, about identity because he taught me, he taught me so much and has walked with me so much through those years of, of, of asking the question of who am I? And sometimes I was asking him in the early years of my life, I was asking the wrong, I was asking the right question, but to the wrong things I was asking culture. And he was involved in that. Um, and, uh, and then later on I was learning to ask my father and he was involved, you know, my father, God, and he was, my dad was involved in that as well. So, um, I thought it was only fair to, 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 to highlight my mom as well. <laughs> well, that, that's good. So, uh, that shame on me for not having read the first book before I read the second book. It's like the guy going to the sequel of the movie, uh, before watching, uh, the foundation. So, uh, I'll take it out on myself later for doing that. But I thought that that was interesting how you mentioned it. Um, but one thing that I, I did want to get into is beginning in chapter three, but certainly you, this is throughout the book, but in chapter three, you introduce a theme that kind of flows through the rest of the book. And that's this, it's what God wants most is a personal relationship with us individually. And, yeah. and that, that you're very clear on your language that that's what he wants most. And so um, at one point you even say, and you mentioned it earlier, that God is so crazy in love with us that he sings over us. He dances because of us. And I guess this is where I would have a, a thematic disagreement with you because yes. I feel like that view is, it's very me-centric point of view. It's a very modern Christian kind of me-centric point of view. And and it'll take me just a second to kind of tease this out, but I promise there'll, there'll be a great question at the end of this rainbow. But um, okay. I first started thinking about this because there was a sermon delivered by Matt Chandler, uh, who, who we love here on this podcast back in 2012. It was at Elevation Church's Code Orange Revival, and it was called God is for God. And so let's just say that this didn't go any way that Stephen Furtick had planned, or, or maybe it did. But And if you want kind of a deeper dive for anyone listening to this episode 22 of this podcast, I do a very, very deep dive into the sermon that he delivered. But essentially, Matt Chandler's point was God's motivation in everything is himself. That God is not uh, for us like we've been taught. You know, culture tells us that we're intrinsically valuable. He tells us that we deserve so much. Uh, it's basically taught us that we're the center of the universe, the universe, but that God is about his glory. And unfortunately, that's just not really being talked about a lot in modern Christendom. Um, 
And the, the good news is about that is, is the Bible isn't about us either, but a lot of us apply biblical stories to us. We put ourselves in biblical stories when we really shouldn't. But uh, the, I guess the best reason that he gives for why God is for God is that, number one, he's not after our begrudging submission. He's ferociously about our joy. And the second thing was that we're essentially not the center of the universe, and that should be really, really great news. Uh, and one other quick quote before I get your reaction, we get to the, the point in my question here. There was a guy that we had on the podcast recently, Greg Kokel. He's written a lot of great books, but one of them is the story of reality. And there's a quote from uh, kind of the middle point of that book, and it's this. There is a saying that has been helpful in some ways, but I think it is misleading in this regard. The saying goes, God has a wonderful plan for your life. From what I understand now, that perspective is in the wrong order. The story is not so much about God's plan for your life as it is about your life for God's plan. Let that mm. sink in. God's purposes are central, not yours. Once you are completely clear on this fact, many things are going to change for you. So there's my my turn to, to be long-winded, but here, here's the question. And so in light of that, in light of you know what Greg Kokel said and Matt Chandler said, would it not be more accurate to say that what God wants most above everything else is his own glory. Yeah. I, 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 and I think it's funny. I, I think that um, everyone is sort of saying the same thing, actually. I mean, there are nuances here and there, and, and when you're talking about a particular topic, you can focus, like if you're talking to a man um, who's hurting um, that man needs to know the love of God. And, and um, scripture says very clearly that God loves us. I mean, I think he created us, so that he would have someone to love, lots of someone's. You know, I say that in the book. Um, and so um, the love of God is, is is a thing. He is love. You know, John says that very clearly, that, that God is love. Um, and in fact, what you're saying, I think, is absolutely true, that it's all about love. It's all about, um, you know, bringing us together into unity with him, to what with what he is doing. In fact, so much so that he puts him inside of us so that he can love us, you know? And so it's all this sort of, you know, um, Paul talks about this a lot of, it's all about unity with Jesus. And so by putting the spirit of Jesus inside us, we get to be a part of this love triangle between the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. And now we are invited into this community of love. And so, yes, absolutely about him. Absolutely about what he is up to because he knows a lot better than we do about what we should be up to and what what's going to fill our lives with joy and peace and um, and significance and purpose and meaning and all the things that we search for everywhere else in life and try to wring out of jobs and titles and insurance and 401ks and all the things that we put, you know, right now out of, you know, hoarding food. Um, so absolutely. Um, I, I think that that um, that we're all we're all kind of saying the same things. Um, and, and I talk about this a lot in invention. So what calling is, there's a chapter on calling. The inventor that I talk about at the beginning of that is um, Alexander Graham Bell because he uh, invented the, um, you know, the telephone um, uh, is sort of, you know, not sending dots and dashes over, over wires, but actually sending um, voice, the human voice over wires. He did that because he, he, his heart was breaking for um for people who are deaf his wife was deaf his mother was deaf and he just had this real heart for for folks who are struggling um with hearing and so he was trying to create the first hearing aid and in the in the process he created the telephone um but he he felt a calling on his life he was a christian and he he um uh you know he did it for other people and that's really the point here is like 
it's what God's doing to rescue the world, to redeem the world. The world broke when sin, sin entered the world. And, we're, and Jesus comes along, you know, a thousand years later and, and um, tries to, you know, not tries to, kicks off a massive rebuilding project, you know, to redeem the world, to right every wrong, every, every wrong word, every wrong act redeemed completely forever. That's what Jesus is up to. And he invites us into that. And that's what calling is. And everyone gets invited into, um, into this amazing project in a different way. But it's not our, it's like you're saying, it's not what we want to do. It's not what our hearts want to do until they're transformed. And then it absolutely is what our hearts want to do. And when the Holy Spirit is working in, our, in, in us, we start wanting it a lot more. And we start finding what we always were looking for in other places. Um, but we get invited into this massive project of rebuilding this world and making all things new. And, um, you know, that's a really, that's a really amazing good news, right? I mean, that's the, these, these two books really deliver the good news to men who, you know, who I think, you know, have been hearing things out of churches that aren't so great, you know, that, uh, you know, you're disappointing to God or the way you live out your calling is to be an usher on Sunday mornings. And that's kind of the, the peak of, you know, calling. That's how you live out your faith. I mean, none of that's super good news. And it was, certainly wasn't for me. But once I started realizing that I could be with him, that I could be united with him more and more every day, that's when the good news started flowing into my life. And that's when I started realizing that his ways are above my ways and that his ways are better than my ways. And that I could, you know, be a part of what he's doing rather than trying to build my own kingdom. Look, I, that discontent that I'm talking about from, you know, starting in, in New York City and, and, and continuing in Silicon Valley, that was because I was doing my own thing. And there was no love in that, you know? I was trying to love myself and not doing it, doing it very well and not understanding that we're built to have the love of God and the grace of God, God flowing into us and then back out of us into the world. And none of that was going on with me. And so no wonder... No wonder I was dis discontented and sad and angry and, you know, all the, all the, you know, the things that I was back then. So I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, but. <laughs> well, I, the thing is, is we could have spent the entire, our entire time here just talking about that one part, because obviously, you know, I put uh, a dichotomy or people on two opposing sides with Matt Chandler and Stephen Furtick. And those two guys obviously have very different approaches. Then you start getting into the arguments with Calvinists and Armenianists. And, you know, uh, right. I, that's not a really terribly interesting topic for me, but it is kind of interesting for me to read things or listen to even worship music through the lens of, man, is God all about me? Because I yeah. feel like God is about him. I feel like he's about yeah. his creation, but we can move on from that point. So we don't uh, belabor it any further because I want to get to chapter five of your book because guys, chapter five is worth the price of this book, but specifically the question section from, from chapter five. And you talk about so many naturalists that kind of want a physical evidence of God, and they're essentially subjecting God to the scientific method and how really that's a wrong way to approach it. And I love this quote from chapter five. It's this, all we've proved is that we have once again, tried to use improper instruments and employ wrong methods. Like if we tried to use a ruler to measure love or a scale to weigh joy. And that quote really stuck with me because when I've had conversations with atheists, there's one in particular, you know, he, he's got a, a wife that he's been with for a very long time. He clearly loves her. But I told him, prove to me that you love your wife. 
And right. he's like, well, well, I don't understand what you mean. I'm like, no, no, no. It's like, you're, you're telling me that we live in a physical world and there, there's nothing outside of the physical world of what we can basically glean with our senses. So here, here, here's a beaker, here's a Bunsen burner, here's a ruler, like here, here's a pen and a pen and a piece of paper. Prove to me that you love your spouse. And I mean, he just, he couldn't get anywhere with that question. So talk about how God has given us an instrument to discover him. And uh, you know, spoiler alert, it's the human heart. That's what you talk about. And you spend the next several pages going over the human heart. But can you flow on that a little bit for us about how the right instrument to use is the human heart? Yeah. So like I said earlier, you know, um, the, the the culture of this world, we're in a golden age of, of discovery of science and technology. And um, there's a great quote in there um, by a... Um, uh, a person who's an atomic physicist um, that he, t- he talks about that. That's the natural character of any golden age. It's that we get so focused on one part of reality that we ignore everything else. And so during this period that we're in right now and have been for a couple hundred years, we've been just intensely focused on the physical world, the natural world and looking for to it to explain everything. And so that's not the way we are designed. We, we were designed, you know, if you go back to Genesis, we were designed by God taking some of the physical world, taking dust from the ground, but then breathing into that, his spirit, his life, his breath. And that, at that moment, we became a human being. And so we have a, we have a physical side, there's no question, and it's an important thing, but we have a physical, we have a, a spiritual side as well that can access him and can access the supernatural. And actually, it's how we access relationship, like you're talking about love. I I know things with my head. I understand history and math and physics and th- that kind of thing with my head, but I know another human being with my heart. You know, I love my wife and my kids with my heart. And God put that in in us so that we could know and love him as well. You know, there there there's so much mystery in all of this, Kyle. I mean, I just I feel like um, you know, um you know, we are built so that there is always going to be more mystery. The more we discover, there more is to discover. So there is no certainty that I'm coming and saying, this is the way it is. I'm more of like the blind man who was blind since birth and Jesus, you know, heals him and the Pharisees want to know like what happened. And he's like, I don't know. I was blind and now I see. And they're like, wait, 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 what? And he's like, dude, I was blind and now I see. That's not, that's, that's sort of who I am in this whole thing is I'm saying, I didn't know about God in this way. And now I do. That's all I know. How the mechanics of all this. We'll never know, you know, not even the greatest theologian of all time is ever going to know this um, with the certainty that we all want. But I have experienced him with my heart. I have, you know, and, and, um, you know, Dallas Willard talks about this in his book, Hearing God. He talks about how the instrument and and, uh, A.W. Tozer talks about this as well. The instrument that we use to actually hear him is our heart. So when a man goes into the wilderness, um, you know, a we, we talked um, before we got on about John Eldridge, who's a good friend and a mentor and been a mentor to me for a few years. He always talks about going into the wilderness and listening for a new name. You know, who does, who do you, th- who am I to you, God, asking that question. And the way that we hear that, you know, men struggle with that. Men go in there and they try to hear with their physical, you know, with their ears, with their, with, with the physical. And uh, we don't hear God that way. Could we? Yes, absolutely. I mean, could God, you know, um, do anything. He could do anything, but most often he speaks in the still small voice. And, um, what that is, is a whisper to our hearts. And so, um, this getting, getting an understanding 
that this is the instrument by which we encounter him, that we feel him in community. You know, and we're in a community of men, and it's a it's and, and it's one of those evenings or one of those mornings where we just know that God's present. There's mercy and love and compassion and breakthrough. The way we feel that is not in our head, but in our heart. You know, when scripture jumps out at us, that's our heart reacting, you know, um, to God and the truth of God. When we're in, when we're listening to some, you know, incredible sermon that's bringing us to the brink of, you know, um, joy or tears or whatever, that's our heart responding, I believe. And so, so yes, when, you know, um, when, you know, and gosh, Christians, many Christian men are, are, are guilty of this as, as I was, um, uh, in, in prior seasons of my life, we, we all, um, you know, try to use the wrong, the wrong method. We want certainty. And so we, you know, we, we, uh, we, we don't want to listen with our heart. We want some proof. Um, but certainly atheists are doing that as well. Like I want to, you know, I want to, you know, like I, you know, say in the book, I want to use a mass spectrometer or, or a, you know, gas chromatograph to, to try to, you know, put God under, under, under the, the microscope and try to figure him out. We're never going to do that. And in fact, I think that's one thing that brings just a ton of richness to life is the mystery and embracing the mystery of God. That's something tremendously bigger than us. We're being invited into, like you said, it's all about God. We get to invite, we, we are invited into what he is doing, into relationship with him, what he's doing in the world. It's a much bigger story than our small stories. And uh, it's a tremendous gift. If we go around trying to figure everything out and demand to figure everything out ahead of time before we engage in something, we just miss out on the adventure of life. We miss out on the richness of life. So I think that's a really important thing for men. And hopefully a takeaway from guys reading this book that the mystery is really important um, and something we're built for. You know, scripture says it's the, you know, the character of God to conceal things and the character of kings to search things out. I think that's absolutely true. It's this, it's this um, paradigm that God has offered, built us for and offered to us. And we, we instead, you know, just spend all of our time, you know, ignoring the mystery, trying to crush the mystery, getting frustrated because we can't crush it, you know, and saying, well, there must not be any God because, because I can't crush it rather than just relenting and saying, you know, he may, you may be able to know him without being able to measure him. You may be able to know him and love him without actually being able to weigh him. And, you know, well, that's, that's one thing that you, you mentioned, you talked about mystery. We live in a world where there cannot be any mystery. I mean, just think about a, a political candidate. You can't not know their, their opinion on a particular social issue, and they can't be in the process of figuring out that social issue. Right. Like you can't right. talk to someone running for national office and then say, you know, I haven't really fully formed my opinion on abortion yet. Yeah, I don't really know how I feel about, uh, you know, immigration. Like you, you can't have that. Because people can't be get behind a mystery. And so we live in this world where these people are trying desperately to prove everything. And the easiest way to prove something in a physical world is with physical tools. And so I think that was a very subtle but great apologetic uh, tactic that you gave to all the readers of this book, which is when you're you know locked horns with an atheist and having a pr- hopefully productive discussion with them, it is not incumbent upon you to prove everything. But no. it is incumbent upon you to just respond with some questions to get them to evaluate their own points of view. Because if well, someone says the, the physical world is all there is, but they can't prove love with the physical world, you have to say using your logic, love doesn't exist. Yes. 
So I think that was a great thing you said there, but what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, um, in, in that circumstance, you know, when, what are we called upon to do as Christians? Um, we're not called upon to, to win every argument, though I do, I do believe that there are people who are called to be apologists and to be out there in the, in the world pushing, you know, um, representing, you know, uh, uh, a different side. And in these debates, Dallas Willard was, you know, a philosopher who had a seat at the table with a lot of great philosophers and uh, was fearless, you know, and sat at that table and had great debates. And I think there are people who are called to do that. But what, but, but what we as Christians, all of us, every one of us, we don't have to be a philosopher for this. What we're all called to is deliver our testimony. You know, in Revelation, Scripture says that the blood, that the, uh, the the dragon, Satan, is defeated. The dragon is thrown down by the blood of the Lamb. That's obviously Jesus on the cross, which we celebrated, you know, recently here, and the word of our testimony. So those two things, nothing more. It's not having the right argument. It's the word of our testimony. So telling people, I don't know about all that. I don't know. I coming with a posture of I'm not sure. But here's what God means to me. That's what changes hearts. That's what defeats the, the enemy. That's what's going to win in the end is those two things, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so nobody can argue with your testimony. This is what happened to me. This is what I believe happened to me. This was my interpretation of my experience. You know, who's going to argue with that? Who could, you know? So that's Absolutely. the most powerful thing we can do as as Christian men is is talk talk about what's happened to us. Yeah, and and there are a lot of great apologists that that will say the same thing. These are guys that basically have the answers and and they know how to work a conversation in the direction of an ends that they would like to get to, but th- that's not really the point. And for a lot of us, that's what right. stops us from sharing our faith is because oh my gosh, they're going to ask me about dinosaurs. Exactly. Oh my gosh, they're going to ask me exactly. about whether or not a man could live in the belly of a whale. Like they're going right. to ask me those things, and it stops you from just asking your waitress, hey, uh, we're about to pray over our meal. Is there anything that I can pray for you specifically about? And those things are just not equitable in any way, shape, or form. Um, I do want to move on to to chapter six. In chapter six, you go through a description of the different journeys you can go on with God. And you've you've alluded to it earlier in our conversation. And I want guys to go out and pick up the book. So don't really give us the full-throated explanation of all these, but give us a a couple of teasers because you throw out three different ways that uh, we can go on journeys with God. The first is a physical and spiritual journey. The second is a spiritual only journey. And the third is a hybrid journey. Can you give us a little bit more detail on that? Yeah, it's a great question as we're all sheltering in place right now. Yeah, um, right. Um, we may not be hopefully when this airs, but we are right now. Um, so it's crazy to be launching this book where I'm encouraging people to go on, you know, physical journeys <laughs> right in the middle of when we can't. Yeah, um, of course. Hopefully this summer we all can and it'll be a big celebration. So um, yes. Okay. So um, like I talked about home, home is a place of security. Home is a place of routine. Home is a place of, um, you know, comfort. And it's not super conducive um, to coming face to face with God. In fact, a lot of the defense mechanisms that we use to protect ourselves from the world and cope and get through the day actually can, like I said, numb our senses and make us less um, able to sense the supernatural, to tap into that other side of reality, right? That we were talking about earlier, that other side of reality that we try to ignore and opt out of, which is the spiritual side. And, And in fact, you know, just real quick, like this other reality, this deeper unseen reality, which is which is talked about so much through the Bible, it's bigger and better. And actually, if we can even think about it this way, when you're talking about eternity, it actually predated the, the, the seen world, the physical world. You know, scripture says that the seen sprang from the unseen. 
and that the the physical world is dependent on this on this um, greater, deeper, unseen um, reality. So um, when we hit the road, when we go into the wilderness, we're able to connect with it better. It's it's easier. Can we do it at home? We absolutely can do it at home. So when you take the the first one, the physical plus spiritual journey. You know, you're, God's showing you something. We don't know ahead of time, but we can, you know, it's usually around some theme about, you know, that he wants to teach us about himself or about us or, you know, just mature us in some way and, and teach us something. And so um, is it easier to do on the road? It, it tends to be. It tends to be better just to pick up and go. And, you know, like, you know, men and women have been doing for 2000 years, you know, going on these pilgrimages to seek God, you know, and they're great stories in the book where I touch on, you know, some of those, some of those stories, like walking the Camino de Santiago or, you know, um, you know, getting in a boat or, you know, I mean, like people, people have been doing for in, in scripture and then for, for 2000 years, but can we do it at home? Because we all live in a real world with, you know, kids and, and mortgages and jobs. Yes, absolutely. And I've, and I've been invited on both of those kinds um, some where I picked up and went somewhere and some where I uh, went through tremendously amazing journeys right at home. I'm actually going through a year of spiritual direction right now. And, uh, it's a fantastic journey. Um, and, and it's all accomplished at home. And then there's a, there's a third kind that's, uh, that is kind of near and dear to my heart because I've engaged in that a lot as well is the hybrid journey. So, you know, uh, you know, and, and that's actually the journey that, like I said, is, is the basis of this book. It, it was about six months. And it was about four um, physical journeys that were punctuating this six-month spiritual journey that that I mostly accomplished at home, but you know, got out into into the wilderness and in, um, in uh, Montana and uh, in the wilderness in Colorado, and uh, had some really amazing encounters with God um, and with with other men of God. Um, so those are kind of the three kinds. They encompass everything. I mean, on one side, you have physical and, and spiritual. On the other end of the spectrum, you have spiritual only, and then hybrids, kind of, you know, anything in the middle. Um, so the, 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 the takeaway from the book is that we just need to dial down as much as we can. <laughs> That's why Jesus says, travel light to the disciples, you know, when he's sending them out. Um, we need to put down the things of the world a little bit so that those things that, you know, protect us, and capture our attention, protect us from boredom, protect us from danger. Those things can also protect us from God, and we don't want that. So um, the book is very practical in sort of trying to, you know, lead men into how to do that in their daily lives. You know, even when kids are screaming and, you know, crying, and and you know, and, and you know, there's, uh, you know, dinner has to be made, and work has to be done, and the mortgage has to be paid. Um, can we do it then? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and men do it all the time and women do it all the time. Um, and that's, that's what I, that's my heart for the book is, is uh, hopefully leading some men into that so that their lives can be transformed and they can actually come face to face. Um, you know, like scripture teaches us, you know, come face to face with the father and, you know, and obviously again, tons of mystery and how that happens looks different and, uh, is going to surprise us. But, you know, people who have come away saying I did, experience something. Can I describe it very well? No. Um, but I experienced something very real, as real as anything else I've ever experienced. Well, I think you, you said something there that is really applicable to what I want to talk about next, which is how practical the book can be and some of the things that you suggest in the book. And you give people a lot of takeaways. Like if you leave the book, having not learned anything, that's your fault. That's not, uh, that's not Justin Camp's fault. And so with that in mind, kind of the last thing I wanted to cover from the book before we move on to the last section of the podcast here is tell us more about the concept that you introduce in the book about how God uses blazes. 
Yes. Okay. So um, that's that's great. So um, you know, I think a lot of men listening, a lot of men that I talk to, um, and, and me too. It was like, great, that's awesome. I I love what you're saying, but how do I do it? What do I do right now? You know. And so, um, yeah, the the stuff at the end of each chapter is meant to you know kind of give a gift to guys of practical stuff. Like we're going to lead you into this, and if you do this, you're going to experience something. Um, but another question I get is like, I want to walk with God. How do I do it? What do I do? You know, I hear sermons all the time about walking with God and, you know, that's what we're all supposed to do. And men, some men talk about it, um, but they have a hard time giving words to it. So that's my attempt to give words to it. So the idea of trailblazing, um, you know, it's, it's making a mark somewhere on an unmarked trail yet unmarked trail, creating a trail with markers. So, um, you know, uh, you know, some people do it. And I talk about a, a guy that I was fishing with one time who was a Mono Indian, um, uh, Native American, and he would make a mark on a tree with an ax as we were um, on horseback going through the high Sierra. And it was so we could find our way back. He was blazing a trail. Uh, now we do it with chalk. We do it with, uh, you know, reflective markers that you can kind of tack into a tree. Um, people will put flagging tape and tie it around a branch, that kind of thing. But the whole idea is that it, it gives us a path back. So, or the, or the person following us can, can um, follow in our, in our footsteps and find the safe way through the, through the wilderness. And so I think God, in my experience, he operates in exactly the same way. So the, the idea of the blaze is that, it, you know, w- what makes for a good blaze? Well, from, from the last one, you can see the next one somewhere off in the distance. If you can't see it, you've lost your way. But there's always one that you can see. And then you go to that one. And from that one, you can see the next one. And, you know, a lot, like I talk about in the book, a lot of times they're, you know, placed fairly high so you can see them easily, especially in places that are going to get some snow. And so um, God operates in the same kind of way, kind of on a, on a need to know basis. Um, and why? I think I think the why is because he likes to keep us close to him. Um, you know, he, he says we're his sons, like real adopted sons. And what does a father want to do? What do I want to do with my boys? Keep them close. And so he, 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 he operates with this need to know basis or this blaze thing. So when we go and do what he's asking us to do, inviting us into offering, um, you know, maybe it's an adventure, maybe it's a confession, maybe it's a, you know, some time in scripture, maybe it's entering, you know, like for me, that time of community, uh, which I'm still in um, with other men. But if we go do it, then he's going to put another blaze out there. And if we go to that one and do whatever he's asking us um, to do or inviting us into with that one, then he's going to give us the next one. And before we know it, we're walking with him and we're getting to know him. We're experiencing him. We're getting to know his character, not what someone else told us he's like, but what he's really like, you know, like the, like the, uh, you know, that song, I think it's, it's, it may be good, good father, but uh, where they say, you know, I've heard a thousand stories of what you're like, you know, but until you actually hear his voice and hear him and experience him and understand who he is to you, that I, I just don't think, you know, you can really know him and kind of fall in love with him like you can until you experience him. So this idea of the blaze is really important. It's how you walk with God. You do what he does. You do what he asks you to. You do what he does. You follow in his footsteps. And, and before long, you're walking with him and you're getting to know him. 
Well, I really appreciate that. And that's something that for a lot of you guys out that do any type of orienteering or you're you're out in the wilderness at all, those are things that you look for. And I know for my group of guys when we've gone camping, you're looking for, you know, what they call Karens. And so these are groups yeah. of rocks that didn't naturally stack up on their own, but they kind of let you know, hey, buddy, you're, you're going on the right path. And so exactly. it's not just looking behind you. You're also looking ahead of you. Because the thing is, is when you're looking at one Karen where that's maybe different from a blaze is you probably can't see the next Karen because you're in the right. middle of the woods, like everything's, you know, maybe up at a, on a different ridge or something like that, but you head in a generalized direction and you'll be able to see it to know that you're still on the right path. And if you've yeah, gone yeah. a long ways for a long time and not seen a Karen, it's it, perhaps you're on the right or you're not on the right track anymore. So, but before we let you go, Justin, I wanted to do something with you that I like to do with some of my guests, because I like to get people's snap judgments on certain things, just so I can maybe set them up to get in trouble later. So I can like use their quotes and uh, use them completely out of context. So Wonderful. it's great fun. Wonderful. Yeah. It's great fun for me, but the, this is called, what would you say to someone that said, and then I'm just going to fill in the blanks. And the thing is, is we got rules here. You can't answer or your answer can't go over 60 seconds, right? Okay. So you just got to get right in, get to the meat of the issue, and you just got to give me a response to what I said. You, you down for it? silent for 60 seconds? Is that no, what no, that would be super <laughs> awkward because what'll happen is I will answer for you at that point and it'll be way worse than if oh, okay. you had just answered oh, yourself. Okay. Fair? Well, at least I have a plan B now. Okay, go ahead. Okay, that's your plan B. All right, here we go. First one. What would you say to someone that said, the last thing men need is another guy telling them to man up. Oh, I agree. hundred um, percent. You know, it's not about what we do. It's about what he's doing. You said it. Absolutely. And so we need his grace in our lives to do what we can't do. So manning up it, it like there is some truth to it. There is, you, you know, being a man of integrity, being obedient to God, it, you know, it's, it's an important thing, but we can only go. So it can only take us so far and it's not very far. It's really not very far. We need him working in our lives. So absolutely, I think <laughs> I think that's the last thing we need is, is another person telling us to man up. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, man has never set foot on the moon? It's a conspiracy. <laughs> I had to get that in. I got conspiracy theories to listen to this podcast. So I, I had to do it, but go ahead. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think there's plenty of proof. I think there is plenty of proof that we actually did it. So I think, I think it's fun to have conspiracy theories. Um, but, uh, I think there is plenty of proof. I've talked to men who, who, uh, who, you know, okay. So how would we, you know, the Soviet union spent as an example, spent, you know, decades trying to pull the wool over the eyes of their, of, of the people of the world and, and their own people. And they don't get away with it. Everyone knows when the lie unravels, you know, this one hasn't unraveled. It's, it's absolutely true in my opinion. Well, it's on the same when people say that the U.S. is behind 9-11. Um, just to use the NASA stuff and, and the Apollo missions as an example, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that would have to be complicit in it. And for 50 years, no one has said a word. I'm sorry, there's not a conspiracy out there that's going to be pulled off that well. And you can't also say that the government is highly inept, but they can pull off a conspiracy like that. But anyway, I will get off my soapbox. I'm ruining my own segment. Here we go. Next one. What would you say to someone that said, why read a book when you can listen to one? Oh, I agree. I think the audiobook. So I did the audiobook right before the shelter in place uh, 
uh, thing came down. So it's out there and actually it's part of the pre-order. So if, if men pre-order before May 1st, they get a, a copy of the um, audiobook for free. But I love audiobooks. I go through, I just churn through audiobooks. I probably read 10 times the books in a year, read in air quotes, that I would otherwise if I wasn't listening to audiobooks. So this one I read myself, which I'm proud of. Um, I had a lot of guys saying, why didn't you read Invention? And and I think I'm actually going to go back and record that. I had a fantastic guy who did, but it's not the author. And so I think I'm going to go back and redo that one. But I agree. I, I love audiobooks. So, All right. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to read the Bible. God has my back. That's good enough. Well, um, it's not good enough. I mean, uh the hearts of men, the hearts of women were made to desire him, to want him. And he gave us one great way to, to seek him that, that will always work. You know, when we go into silence, we don't know if we're going to sense his presence or not, or whether our mind's going to be moving so quickly that we don't um, actually slow down enough to hear him or sense him, or maybe he's not speaking in that moment, but we can always open up scripture and experience him. It's the one sure place that we can I think the other one that comes close to it is community, you know, like a community of men who really love God. I, I, that's a that's an amazing one. You know, Jesus says he's uniquely present when two or more are gathered. And and I've experienced that so much in my life. I just think those are two non-negotiables, you know, for me at least. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said pastors don't need to talk about the Lion of Judah? The Lamb of God is just fine. No. Oh. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's funny. I, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, no, I mean, that's not the full story. Jesus defeated sin and death. You know, he did come, he did, he did come with a, with a masculinity and with a strength that was a deeper strength. You know, I love in, uh, in, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, they talk about a deeper magic that only, the only, that only Aslan knew, you know? Um, and I do believe there's something really powerful in the way that Jesus brings his power. And I see it in my own life, you know? Mercy and forgiveness are incredibly powerful, but at the same time, he was fighting, you know, the biggest force of evil in the world and he defeated it. So that's not the full story. It's just the lamb. I certainly agree. This next one's going to be uh, good for our kind of our modern age that we are in socially. But what would you say to someone that said there is no difference between men and women? Oh, gosh, that's uh, yeah, I don't I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> Well, you're, you're losing time. You only got like 50 seconds left. <laughs> I mean, gosh, you know, like identity is so important, you know, how God created us, who he created us to be. And he created us with, with different, you know, roles in the kingdom. And if we ignore that, if we try to ignore that, you know, we, we set ourselves up for great pain and that includes gender type stuff. And so, yeah, I don't, I, I, I think we always need to be going back to God and saying, who did you create me to be? And asking that question and listening for whatever he says. He's the one who decides. He's the maker. You know, he's the inventor and we're the invention. That's the whole theory. That's the whole point of, uh, if you had to boil down my first book, Invention, you know, that's the thing is we need to ask him. He's the one who decides, not us. All right. Just a couple more here. What would you say to someone that said, why in the world should I read? I'm done with school. <laughs> these are, these these are, are things awesome. that I've heard. These are things that I've heard. So that's why I'm asking. Awesome. I mean, you know, gosh, I, I can't imagine shutting myself off from, from the richness of, of, you know, the conversations that are happening in the world a lot through books, you know, I mean, the great, great issues are debated in books, you know? And so I, uh, I'm an avid reader. I always have been. So I can't imagine like, you know, when, when John Eldridge's new book came out, you know, 
get your life back. I, I can't imagine not being a part of that and reading that and bringing that wisdom into my life. We're meant to do life together, you know, and, uh, you know, I want to be able to learn from, from great men and women and their thinking about, you know, about the world and about God and about all, all subjects. So I think that's crazy to not, <laughs> to not read. All right, Justin, last question of the day. Here we go. What would you say to someone that said, we should not be encouraging men to be masculine? Masculinity is toxic. So I do believe there is toxic masculinity out there. I think it's uh, something that's perpetuated by the enemy through our culture, though I don't think it's it's something that God ever intended. God intended masculinity. His masculinity is just, a, it's a different kind. And it actually takes a lot more courage and a lot more bravery to be a man who's after Jesus and following Jesus than it does to be a man who's hiding. You know, the stoic, quiet, you know, uh, man who's, you know, losing, you know, who's, who's hiding behind, you know, um, sexual conquests or alcohol or something like that. It's just cowardice at the end of the day. No, I'm not, I, I, I gotta, I gotta be super careful. <laughs> you know, there's, there are addictions out there that I want to be super, um, you know, kind about the guys are stuck in addictions, but that is not a picture of masculinity. That's not something we aspire to. That's something we aspire to get free from. We aspire to be Jesus's brand of masculine, which means being vulnerable and being uh, willing to confess our sins and live in a, in a way that is, that is very scary, but very dangerous. That's the kind of thing that changes families and changes neighborhoods and changes uh, businesses and changes the world. So absolutely, we need masculinity, um, but I'm not advocating for toxic masculinity either. But that's not, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what the church should be advocating for either. Absolutely. Well, man, we went everywhere in this conversation. We covered quite a bit of ground, spent a lot of time on your new book, which was awesome, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? So one thing uh, that I just wanted to throw out there, I talked about some some of the pre-order items for this book. You know, you get a copy of Invention, you get a copy of the audio book for Odyssey if you pre-order. Um, but uh, we also are doing a four-part um, limited series podcast where I talk about the book in a little more detail. My wife asked me some questions about it. And uh, we go deeper into some of the themes. And then I also read out of the book. So um, guys are already enjoying that. The, uh, you know, I'm getting a lot of good feedback from that. And um, so just, you know, look for that as well. It's, it's just like the name of the book is Odyssey. And it's by Justin Camp. And it's easy to find everywhere where podcasts are listened to. So um, that's, that's the only thing I, else I'd throw out there. Well, excellent. We'll make sure that all those uh, links are in the show notes and we'll just uh, get it out to the guys that way. But aside from that, Justin Camp, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you, Kyle. I really appreciate it. There you go, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to the entirety of this interview. We really appreciated uh, everything that Justin had to say. We're glad to get that information out to you. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for today, I've got the links for you to the Odyssey book website. And then I've also got the Odyssey podcast episodes that he had mentioned there at the end of the podcast. I've got where you can go and order his book, the new book off of Amazon and his other books off of Amazon. Then we've got his website, the Wire for Men website. So make sure you go in there, get signed up for the devotionals that he puts out. It's fantastic. And then also I've got a link for the Wire for Men Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, guys. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media.
If you deserve a five-star review, please leave us five stars in a few sentences letting us know why you like the content because that is how this is going to continue to grow and get out to more guys like you. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, at your company, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, that's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. My website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>